Well, I am delighted that you're all here, and I pray as we launch our next study here in the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll follow it with the second letter to the church at Corinth, that you are blessed, that you're equipped, and that you're ready for the world that you live in, because this is probably the most single relevant book on practical instruction of things that were going on in a real church during a period of time some 2,000 years ago that when you look at it, you go, wow, that kind of sounds like Redondo Beach or that, you know, it's like my neighborhood or our neighborhood or right here uh, in the South Bay. And so as we dig into 1 Corinthians, if you'd turn there, we're going to look at the first three verses tonight and really do an introduction uh, to this book because it is... One of the longer letters in all of the Bible, it is also a very practical and yet very pointed letter. There are some very specific issues that the Apostle Paul addresses here, and he addresses them really in a way that is not addressed any other way uh, in all of Scripture. So we have some things that are said to the Corinthians uh, that really, in the way that they're, they're dealt with here in Corinthians, are not dealt with anywhere else in the Bible. There were some major headlines. Sex. Drugs. Rock and roll. No, they, they didn't have <laughs> rock and roll. But lawsuits. Divorce. Financial misdealings. Kind of sounds like our government, right? It sounds like the world that we live in. And though the conditions wherein these things were prevalent were different, the problems themselves were as if they happened here, happened in our time. And so let's ask the Lord to speak to us because these were a very, very broken group of people, broken lives, though they lived in paradise. They lived on the coast of the country of modern-day Greece. They lived in a beach town. They lived in a place where most people wanted to come to vacation. And so let's ask the Lord to speak to us through what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Father, we thank you for the timelessness of your word. And we pray tonight, as we embark on a journey here in a new book, a new letter, that we see everything you've called us to see. Lord, every word is written by you through the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would bless us with your presence as we study. Would you be the interpreter of all things? Lord, help us to apply these words to our own lives. In our day and time, we ask this in the name of Jesus, the name that's above every name. Amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now remember that the apostle Paul is not one of the original 12. He has this conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, called by God, he's left in essence in that state of blindness. He's taken into the city. Uh, he'll eventually spend uh, three years likely in Saudi Arabia wandering with the Lord in the wilderness. Uh, he is called by the will of God. 
He's appointed by the Lord. Uh, No one of their own volition, being a Jew, would have picked the city of Corinth to spend much time in. Though there were Jews there, it was primarily a heathen city. It was primarily a Gentile city. Uh, It will become a more Romanized Greek city. And so it's the last place that you would expect to find the Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as Paul calls himself, and Sosthenes, our brother. And it is most likely that Sosthenes was his scribe. It is almost always the case that when we're reading Paul's letters, we can fairly well assume that he wrote them himself in the sense that he dictated to someone else who would write them down. Uh, It's quite probable in this case it's Sosthenes. Now remember that this book is being written actually uh, as it's being written to the church at Corinth. It's being written from Ephesus. And so these two cities, Ephesus and Corinth, are on opposite shores of the Aegean Sea, one in modern-day Turkey, the other in modern-day Greece, And they, if on a clear day, uh, if you could grab a set of binoculars, you might be able to see uh, one from the other. But they were both troubled cities, and they were both troubled for very similar reasons. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And remember, as we studied through the book of Romans, one of the results of someone coming to faith in Christ that you begin that journey of sanctification, simply becoming more saintly or more saint-like, which is to become more like Christ. And so these are the saints, these are believers. He's writing to the church. And this is super important as we begin this. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to people who don't know the Lord. This letter is actually written to the church. So the problems in this letter are problems in the church. These are not problems outside of the church, though they surely exist outside of the church as well. These are problems that crept their way into the church. They were inside the four walls, if you will, of the church. And that will be the amazing thing as we begin this journey. You're going to say, really? That was going on in the church? Really, that was going on in the church. They were called to be saints, those that are set apart. With all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we begin this journey, remember that there's exactly one church. There are many different manifestations of that one church, but there's one church. If you're a believer, you're part of the one church. And though there are all kinds of different ways that the church expresses itself, from God's perspective, according to the Word, if you are a believer in Christ and you are connected spiritually to every last believer on the face of the earth, and in fact, they're your brothers and sisters. This is one of the reasons that the letter to the church at Corinth is so important. Because if we're actually family, we ought to be treating one another like family. If we're part of the same body, then we ought to care for one another as if you are an arm and I am an arm, or you are a hand and I'm an arm, or you're a head and I'm a thorax. We we are part of the same body. 
most of us do not intentionally harm our own body. Amen? Well, some people do, and they pay money for it, but it's, it's not normal, okay, for most people to go, you know, I just don't like this finger, I'm going to cut it off. If that's you, we can talk after service. You take care of your own body. You care for it. You nurture it. Judging from the number of health clubs in Los Angeles, we try really hard at times to take care of our bodies. I personally tried a new barbecue place on PCH yesterday, and can't say I was taking care of my body, but my stomach thanked me. You see, we're part of the one body, amen? And, and so that's why when you read this letter, it's like, man, these things were part of the church. This was going on with God's people and involving God's people. Both theirs and ours. Those who in every place and in everywhere and the reason this is so vital to us to think on this correctly is that we don't want to isolate the teachings of this book to somebody else's church, to somebody else's life, to somebody else's existence. Because I guarantee you everything we will read about in the book of 1 Corinthians is happening right now in this church, unfortunately. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the headlines, this incredibly beautiful city, there's trouble in paradise, so to speak. You know, sometimes when people come and visit us, uh, we're prone to forget exactly how beautiful the place is that we live. I've been conversing back and forth with a guy that's writing a couple of books on the East Coast, and uh, he, he lives in upstate New York, so it's a little chilly there right now. He just had an opportunity to, to travel down to Florida, and he spent some time down there and then flew out here to the West Coast, and all of a sudden his wife wanted to move. Because at their house, it was 20 below. Here, it was about 85 degrees warmer. It's the way it was in Corinth. Mediterranean, moderate climate. Right out overlooking the beautiful Aegean, this incredible turquoise sea. But just like what we see here in our day and time, don't let the beauty fool you. There's a lot of broken people. Connie and I lived in the mountains. You know, we, we lived in, in the place that everyone else goes to visit. As soon as the snow falls, everyone in Southern California went to the Gill's house. Uh, and we'd walk out in our front yard, and there'd be hibachis and lawn chairs, and people would just come and play in the snow. Corinth was that place. Corinth was where people went when they wanted to have a good time. No, Disneyland wasn't there, Knott's wasn't there, and Magic Mountain wasn't there. But there were a lot of other things that people were really, really 
looking forward to doing, and they weren't all good. You see, we're tempted to think that in the church, you're not going to find some of the things that Paul mentions here. We're tempted to think that sin only occurs in nightclubs and hotels and motels and bars and maybe some stadiums, but not so much the, the church. But when you look at the world that we live in, how many times, one of, the, one of the amazing things about Billy Graham's life, and for those of you that are living on Mars and didn't know that he went home to be with Jesus this week, one of the amazing things about his testimony, uh, he set out very early on, and it's widely known, repeated often, that there were three things that would captivate the heart of man, money, power, and sex. And so he set out in the very beginning of the Billy Graham Association's founding to take himself out of all financial dealings, to take himself out of full power within the Billy Graham Association, and to go so far as to never, ever even get into an elevator alone with another woman. Oh, that maybe the church would learn a lesson from that. Because we see in our news, unfortunately, the Lord's name shamed. Uh, and I'll leave the names out because probably most of you can name some of them. Pastors who have 50, 60, 100 million dollar net worths. Take multiple million dollar salaries. Drive Ferraris that God gave them. Multi-million dollar mansions. It's scandalous. It's not the life that a man who claims to stand for things being temperate and moderate. You just can't justify it. The world was very much the same then. There were financial scandals. There were sexual scandals. There were power plays. Heresy was almost the norm. Instead of teaching the word, you know, it's mind-boggling, but when you go through the religious book section, see if we're ever going to have you know, any more bookstores, they're disappearing right and left because everything's online now. But when you walk through the religious book section, about two-thirds of the stuff that's in there, maybe three-quarters, isn't worth turning into fire starters. Because it's heretical. Some of it just outright lies. And yet it purports to be from God. It was the same then. Different circumstances whereby those things were said and nobody was wandering around. They didn't go to a Barnes and Noble. But they would travel that 48, 50 miles over to Athens and stand on the Oropagus, Mars Hill, and debate who is God. 
Now we do that on the internet. Now we do that in social media. We do that in the blogs. We do that in print. We do that on the TV screen. It is amazing how many people think that God is to be found in television. And that that view of Him is true. You're going to see as we embark in this study that what the great King Solomon in the very first chapter of the book that we call Ecclesiastes, there in verse 9, said that which has been is what will be and that which is done is what will be done for there is nothing new under the sun amen same problems befall mankind we just we just do them in a far more technologically advanced way we we have new and more perverse ways to accomplish the work of sinning in our day and time. You want to set the scriptural reference to this time period? It's found there in Acts chapter 18, the first 11 verses, and it says this, And after these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews depart Rome. And then he came to them, and so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So we know that Paul was a tent maker, that he met Priscilla and Aquila, and that he reasoned in every synagogue on the Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And then while Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And so the Messiah of the Jewish people, Paul believed that Jesus was in fact Messiah. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he's preaching in Jewish synagogues. He's sharing the good news of the gospel. He says, if you won't receive it, God's sending me to the Gentiles. And then he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God and whose house was next door to the synagogue. So it's like he walks out the front door of the synagogue, goes into a Gentile home. Here's a man who's worshipping God, and he says, if you guys won't have any of it, I'll go next door. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. And now notice this, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And so Paul plants this church that's pictured in Acts chapter 18. He then travels on his missionary journey, goes back to Jerusalem, then goes back up the coast of what uh, we would call through Lebanon and into Syria and, and finally into part of Turkey today. And he's going to write this letter back to this church that he founds while he's with Aquila and Priscilla and Justice and Crispus. And verse 9 there in Acts chapter 18 says, And now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision, 
Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack, no one will hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so the Apostle Paul, uh, as we think about his missionary journeys, he travels, remember he's, he's imprisoned in Caesarea Maritima, uh, they're on the coast of modern-day Israel. He makes three basic trips and a fourth one as he travels to be uh, finally put into chains in Rome, ultimately to lose his life in Rome. But most of his missionary journeys are spent in what we would call uh, the, country of a- the countries of Asia Minor, so the churches of Revelation, that general area, and in the peninsula of Greece. And so as you look at the uh, a G and C, it basically divides Asia Minor uh, from Greece, and then beyond that would be Italy and Rome. And so these two cities, uh, one being Corinth, the other being Athens, are not very far apart. Uh, if you really took a great whack at it, you might be able to get between the two in a 24-hour period if you were walking really, really fast. Probably a two-day journey. It's about 48 miles to the west of Athens. It's an ancient city. Uh, If you look at it today from Google Maps, uh, you can actually look at that little tiny peninsula uh, or the isthmus that connects what what was the the ancient province of Acacia. So when you see Acacia in your Bible, uh, it is the Peloponnese Peninsula that is actually part of Greece joined by a very narrow isthmus, only four miles wide. And on that isthmus, on the Aegean side, uh, there is the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was a a major port city. It was a very wealthy city. And if you go there today in the very late 1800s, it was completed actually in 1893, Uh, They dug a canal some four miles long connecting the Gulf of Corinth with the Aegean Sea, and now ships can actually pass through in that canal. But at that day and time, it was narrow enough and would save at least a week's worth of journey by sea because the prevailing winds come from uh, what would be Europe, which in the photo that you have there uh, on the screen would be to the top of the page, uh, so the top of the map. The winds would blow from that direction towards what would be the south or towards Africa. And so it was very difficult to sail north. And so as you rounded the, the peninsula of Acacia, uh, you would ultimately encounter a headwind, making that journey very hazardous, a very long journey. And Paul's final journey when he heads to Rome uh, takes him the better part of two weeks. And so During this day and time, they would actually take the smaller ships, put them on logs, attach ropes to them, normally with people and some type of draft animal, probably mules, could have even been large goats. And where the canal is now, they would simply roll the ships across that four-mile isthmus. They would just put log in front of log and keep pulling and keep pulling and keep pulling and then launch it into the Corinthian Gulf, which would be on the north side of the isthmus. And so it was a very, very, very good place to live uh, if you were in business. Because you had trade with the Greeks, you had trade with the ancient Phoenicians, you had trade with the Romans, you even had trade because this is the end of the Silk Road. Uh, 
So as the Silk Road came from Asia, it wrapped around through what was then Macedonia, and you could do all kinds of trading. So it was a very wealthy, it was a well-to-do uh, place. It would be conquered in, in 146, uh, basically, and destroyed by the Romans, but in the New Testament, it was being rebuilt at that time, and so it was a very, very prominent city. And Paul ministers there, this time, for a year and a half. Uh, he will visit it again, at which time he'll spend an additional three months there. And so uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is written around 55 AD, uh, so it's just about 20 years after the death of Christ, 22 years. Um, it is in the heart of the movement of the gospel from the early church, which is almost entirely Jewish, surrounding Jerusalem, to what is modern-day Greece and Italy. So the gospel's beginning to move out. Uh, the Corinthians, though, were still a very Greek society at their heart, at their core. So imagine that the Romans have come. Remember that Alexander the Great conquered most of the known modern world. Uh, and as he does that, uh, he is then over, finally dies at age 32. Uh, coming along after him would be uh, that period of time that uh, the Ptolemies would rule North Africa, uh, part Greek, part Romans, little intermarriages going on. So the society now that's in Greek is not a completely Greek society. So when Paul gets there, it's a very integrated, a very multiracial society. Very tolerant of almost anything and everything. So if you had worshipped the Roman gods, you were good. If you worshipped the Greek gods, you, you could look on a clear day across the Aegean Sea and see Mount Olympus, supposedly the home uh, of the Greek gods. Uh, you, could, you could look across the peninsula and look towards the Italian peninsula, towards Rome. So you were centrally located, and so in order to keep peace, basically you could do anything in Corinth. And so when people came to Corinth, they expected to let their hair down a little bit. And in fact, there were the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Artemis, uh, both of which involved ritual cultic prostitution, both male and female. And so part of their worship was to worship the human body, flesh. They were excruciatingly hedonistic. And in fact, uh, it would become to known that if you were really kind of a debauched person, you were known, known to have been Corinthianized. That's how bad it was. We don't even have a modern equivalent. So if someone was really just you or just kind of like a party animal, people would basically say, oh, well, you must be from Corinth. So you can imagine, now think about it for a second, and this is where it helps us. Think about planting a church in a city like that. Thinking about being the one person who's willing to say, look, you guys can't continue this way. You are new creations in Christ. The old things are passing away. Behold, they're all becoming new. What are you doing? People are kind of fond of their sins. I can tell you that as a pastor. Uh, you should hear some of the excuses I get for why people continue in the things that they're continuing in. 
And while I'm actually not being condemning because people come to that realization at different points in their walk and it's like all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, but when people are attached to something really deeply, like worshiping at the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis, being able to walk down the street virtually naked, they're like, well, you know, we got to put clothes on to come to church. Well, we don't do that at my old church. So you can imagine Paul was in a rough place to deal with problems. In some ways, dealing with people who are severely broken can be at times actually easier because a lot of times people who are totally broken actually know there's something wrong. It's when people are just used to living the high life. If you want to know who's the most difficult people group to reach on the face of the earth, let me save you the trouble. It's wealthy, educated people. The most difficult people to reach on the face of the earth are wealthy, educated people. Why? Because they think they already have everything they need. They don't have any issues. If they have issues, they can pay to not have issues. Seriously. I've actually had people tell me that. Well, you know, if I had that problem, I'd just pay somebody to get rid of it. You had extreme wealth in Corinth, so he was dealing with that as well. You also had two very different religious groups. So you have the Jewish people who were there, and their problem is very, very, very stark religious understanding. In other words, they're still believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and at the same time trying somehow to attach grace to the same God that wiped out the Egyptians in the Red Sea. So on one hand, you have a legalistic religious group. On the other hand, you have a group that says, hey man, can't we just all get along? So you've got the legalists and you've got the libertines all being written to as a single group. Imagine that church. People all sitting around, they're talking about the Lord, and you got one group that's like, well, we know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you've got another group, so, well, we worship at, you know, we were up at the Temple of Diana last week. They're kind of a little bit harder to deal with in that type of diversity, isn't it? Because one thing doesn't necessarily work for both unless the one thing is truth. So you're going to see a lot of truth. Paul's going to preach the truth about sin. He's going to preach the truth about the way we need to be. He's going to preach the truth about the resurrection. And so consequently, you kind of had a little bit of a war going on in the church. So he's going to be asked a bunch of questions, and those questions are answered by this letter. On one hand, you have the Jewish people who are kind of like, you know, we're just not okay with eating any kind of meat that could have possibly come from a sacrifice up, or up there at the temple of Aphrodite, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis. You know, I realize it's really good barbecue, but we're, just, we're not going there. You have those people. Then you have the other people going, man, it's the best meat in town. It's like, what's wrong? They're just going to throw it out. Let's, let's just go, let's put some sauce on that and have some brisket. 
But you can kind of see how you're talking to one and they need to be set free from legalism. You're talking to the other. It's like, man, whoa, slow down there, Bubba. It's like maybe the grace of God doesn't quite go that far. The book of 1 Corinthians addresses these two people in the scope of one letter. Paul's going to apply some suitable remedies to, to these abuses, these disorders, these things that are just prevalent throughout the church. You know, we now have, pretty much universally in our country, no-fault divorce. I cannot tell you how many Christians get their understanding of divorce from the government instead of the Bible. I can't tell you. You see, so if I came in here and I was going to preach and teach about divorce and I use the government as my source of information, y'all just do whatever you want to do. You don't like your wife? Ah, oh well, you know, you probably have some irreconcilable differences. Look, the fact that you're a man and a woman, that's an irreconcilable difference, okay? Seriously. But we've turned it into something. They had turned it into something. It's like, well, can a man just divorce for any reason? There's some frank talk about the human sexual relationship in this letter. It's like, well, what will we do with this? We're kind of just used to doing whatever feels good. We'll get into some of that. We'll have some PG-13 messages in this particular study. Because this book is PG-13. But Paul's going to give satisfactory answers that bridge across the differences between the religious legalists and the libertines. And I can tell you there's only one way to do that. And that's to preach the truth of God to both groups. When I deal with couples in marital counseling, when there's an issue, there's a problem. The only thing that puts them on the same page is a central truth that comes from God's Word. If I try and justify what might be good for the husband or what might be good for the wife, or if I try and say, well, you know, if I was married to him, I'd, you know, I'd shoot him too. <laughs> and trust me, there are times like, yeah, it's not a bad idea, really, you know. Because there's, all, there's, there's not stuff going on. Like he ever touches you, he hits you again, I'll shoot him, you won't have to. There are times when you think that, why? Because as a human being you can have compassion. This woman has gone through hell with this man. And by the way, it flips around, it can be exactly the same going the other way. The only thing that brings them to a central place is are the two of you married? Did you make vows before God? Are you both believers? And you know what? You have to do what the Word says, and you have to do what the Word says. So you need to stop hating your wife. If you hit her again, that's not of God. It is from the pit of hell. You are in trouble with God. And you need to forgive Him because that's what Christ did for you. You see, you hold people to the Word of God, and they're both held to the same standard. If you start trying to justify it by human means, there's no end. So Paul is going to apply God's character and God's nature to all of these different things, these answers. 
The people of Corinth had a mythical king. His name was Sisyphus. And Sisyphus, actually, if you've ever read the works of Albert Camus, uh, Albert Camus actually wrote of this mythical king of Corinth, King Sisyphus. And what he would do is he would take a giant ball of rock and he would push it up a hill all day. And at the end of the day, he'd get to the top of the hill and it would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And then the next morning he would get up and grab that same round ball of rock and he would roll it all the way back to the top of the hill, get to the top of the hill at the end of the day, and it would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And in the mythological sense, that's kind of what people do who don't have God in their life. They push that same ball of bitterness up the same hill expecting there to be a different result, and it rolls right back down to where they started. They take that same ball of anger, or that same ball of lust, or that same ball of adultery, or that same ball of drugs, or that same ball of alcohol, and they push it up the same hill, and they get to the top only to find out that gravity takes over, and it rolls right back to where they started. Einstein defined it, defined it as, as that the, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and expecting a different result. You see, the people in Corinth were doing exactly this. They were running through marriage after marriage and divorcing whomever they wanted for the sake of some simple sexual pleasure or some simple financial reward or some thinking that perhaps if they got a new husband or a new wife, that somehow the problems that they themselves had would be fixed. Did you hear what I said? You see, a lot of times people think that in changing a spouse, they themselves are no longer going to be the problem. The problem with that is you're still you. And so you can change, and that's why the incident of a second divorce after the first divorce is so prevalent in our country. And a third and a fourth. Because there's no end to you trying to satisfy you. And so Paul addresses these issues where the problem really lies, and that's with me and you. He begins to look at people and says, you know what, what we really need to do is get to the heart of the problem, and at the heart of the problem is my heart. The heart of the problem is your heart. The heart of the problem is, is that sometimes we do really dumb things, and we think everybody else is wrong, but we're right. And so Paul tack tackles all these things. Because without there being absolutes, it's one of the things that we deal with in our world today. We live in a world where people do not want to hear that there's absolutes. One of the struggles that we have is the Bible is filled with absolutes. It's filled with grace, but the evidence of grace in a believer's life is I am no longer who I was. I was bought and paid for with a price. And so I am now living a life that should reflect the nature of Christ. And so it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, and that should look a certain way, 
there are absolutes that come into our lives. While we may implement them imperfectly, the bottom line is God has an opinion on divorce. You know what it is? He hates it. God has an opinion on fornication. It's not ever okay with him. He has an opinion on drunkenness. It's not to be part of a believer's life. And so people thinking that they can make up their own rules try and tell God what he's supposed to accept. Well, I don't like that absolute. Apostle Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says, it's not my problem. That's your problem. You don't believe what God says. And so basically what he's going to do is he's going to give them the good news. And he does that first here in the, in the first ten verses, really. That they're in Christ. Yeah, praise the Lord, amen? If you're here tonight and you're a believer, say amen. Because if you're in Christ, you're going to heaven. Behold, the old things have passed away and you're becoming a new creation in him. And so you now have victory over that which used to keep you in bondage. That which used to keep you in bondage was called sin. But you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, but he hath made us alive. Amen? So now we're walking in that newness of life. That's all by grace. That's the good news. God's going to enrich us. He's going to place into our lives things that we never had before. An awareness of right and wrong. An awareness of sin. He places within us His own Holy Spirit so that we now have kind of a built-in inertial guidance system. You know, I don't know if you ever watch these things, but every once in a while, you know, some new technology will come out and I'll watch how it, you know, it, the, the iterations of all the different types of guidance it goes through. And man, we've got some crazy stuff. I was watching this picture of a Tomahawk cruise missile flying down through a, flying down a street in Syria, making a couple of turns down a couple of other streets, and then taking off, going over the tops of a couple of buildings, and then going right into an ammunition bunker and blowing the thing completely to bits. Why? It has onboard guidance. It's using GPS, it's using tracking, it's using navigational mapping that comes from uh, satellite imaging. And all of a sudden, this thing, just precision is being led down one street after another street. The target's been marked, and boom, the thing goes right into a window. Those are nearly 30 feet long, the bigger ones. And yet it's flying down streets at near supersonic speed. It's perfectly guided. The same is true in your life by the Holy Spirit. God's Word is true. He's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies of the truth of God's Word. And so as that Word becomes alive in you, it causes you to know which turns to take and which turns not to take. The Holy Spirit is the discerner of the intents of the heart of man, and it causes us to know right from wrong, sin from that which is His perfect will. And so the good news is you have that. He's going to remind them that the Lord's going to return. And can you imagine? I saw a cartoon today, and it was, I, I almost posted it up on Instagram. 
because it was perfect. It, it, it actually showed, you know, I think, again, poor St. Peter. He's always stuck at the gate. But the cartoon was, here's this book, and it looked like it was the Lamb's Book of Life. And there's, I guess it was Peter. And Billy Graham comes up. And, and whoever this guy was kind of turns over his shoulder, says there's a few people that'd like to say thank you. Isn't that true? Isn't that awesome? And you turn around and you look up this hill and there's just millions of people in the background. You see, we're going home one day. This earth is not our home. This isn't the end for us. And in that sense, you could kind of say this is as bad as it gets. It gets way better from here. So Paul, in that sense, is giving them the good news. He's saying, look, this is who you are in Christ. And it's going to get way better. And because of that, they had the power now. They have the power now. We have the power now. You have the power now to live your life blameless and strong. Why? Because God is faithful. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful. He who has begun that good work in you is faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? So he's going to tell them that in the beginning. And the reason this is important is when you remind people, look, this is who you are. I've done quite a few weddings. And I've had a couple of them to where I guess the bride did not remember that her dad spent $5,000 on the wedding dress. And you look at it, man, she's been wandering through the dirt and the mud, and man, the whole back of her dress looks like it, it came from a cow trough or something. You know, it's just like, it's like hideous. Very unbecoming the bride. It's kind of like, man, don't you see what you're doing? You're the bride. Don't you think you made me want to, you know, go change if you're going to tromp through the fields or whatever? We're the bride. We're not supposed to be covered with mud. We're not supposed to be gooped up with junk. Not supposed to have sticks hanging off of us like we've been out in the boonies somewhere, not caring about where we go. In that sense, we're supposed to be dressed up and ready because at any moment, the bridegroom could come. Amen? That's the good news. And so he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And I love this because it helps me remember, look, this is who I am. I'm pretty cognizant of the fact that I had the privilege of pastoring this church. And I can tell you, it changes the way I think when I'm on the freeway. Oh, no, I can't drive like that. That guy just cut me off, and Lord, please deal with my mind right now. But I, I'm, a, I'm a child of God. I, I cannot even though i have 315 horsepower underneath this hood i cannot do the same to him why it would shame the lord it would shame you 
You know, imagine pastor in jail, road rage incident. <laughs> Good, right? I remember who I am. And in remembering who I am, it changes how I live. Keeps me in check. Reminds me, Jeff, you're my child. I would not do that. I expect you to not do that. Please don't shame the family name. We're going to see five similarities in this, in this amazing book. And as you think on them, man, you and I, we still need the instruction of God's Word. Amen? One of the things that we have here is God speaking into the lives of, of these people who are in Corinth. I want Him to speak into my life. I want Him to continue to transform and change me. Massage the way I think. Keep me in line. At times we need that, don't we? You can say yes. Yes, you do. You need that. Now, some of us don't have the same problems as other people. But I'm sure there are people in this room right now who actually still need the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Am I right? That's why we need God's Word. I need to know what God thinks about things. I need to know what He wants. We need to be instructed. I remember talking last week, and it's like, it is amazing how many times you ha can have read the same passage of Scripture. And, and there are some passages that, you know, I don't even know, I honestly do not know how many times I've taught that passage. I couldn't tell you. I wouldn't even venture a guess. But it's a bunch. And as you're reading through, all of a sudden, something by the Holy Spirit jumps off the page and right into your heart and right into your mind. And you're going, man, I never saw that before. I go back through some of my older notes from decades ago. It's like, wow, can't believe anybody ever listened to me. And I say that actually respectfully of what the Lord was doing then. It's like new truths have, have entered my mind. It's like you see things differently. So it happens to everyone. We all need that instruction. You and I live in an unbelievably aggressive, pluralistic society. I saw a guy today driving. I was over on Figueroa, and I'm coming down to the church, and there it is. He didn't have one. He had two coexist bumper stickers. It's like he's got one up on the glass and one on the bumper. And while it's true in a sense of society, we want to be kind to everyone. We want to show love towards people. We want to accept people for who they are. That's necessary. But when it comes to the gospel, there's only one name under heaven whereby anyone can be saved. And so the truth of the gospel cannot be compromised for the sake of being friends. You can compromise on anything and everything else. And I don't mean that in the negative sense of sin, but somebody, you know, you, you like your 
buildings to look this way and they like theirs to look that way. You think this is how you ought to act in your home. They think this is how you... We're not talking about those things which would be cultural. We're talking about the truth of the gospel. Paul is going to be in a pluralistic environment where people are accepting the Roman religion, they're accepting the Greek religion, they're accepting any kind of paganism there is. There are people who are still trying to hang on to Judaism, and now comes grace. And he's going to have to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. You see, there is actually only one way. It's not all relative, and all roads do not lead to heaven. They can all point you some direction, so maybe you start looking. But as it narrows down, there's only one Savior, there's only one Lord, and His name is Jesus. Relativism cannot get you there. The third thing that he faced is everybody's claim, are, are you, is it not crazy how our society has reached this place to where everyone claims their own personal rights? It's like, I have my right to and fill in the blank. For a Christian, do you know how many rights you have? Zero. You have all responsibilities before the Lord. He's actually the master. So in that sense, you answer to him. People in our day and time do not like that. It's like, well, what about this? And fill in the blank. No, God actually has an opinion on that. He wrote it down in his word. We are his. He actually bought and paid for us with his own blood. In Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord, you actually don't get to call your own shots anymore. Which, by the way, I say, praise God, hallelujah, I didn't do so good when I had that opportunity myself anyway. And it's not a negative thing. Because He tends to us with velvet hands. He loves us into those things. He doesn't beat us up. But he actually cares about how you live your life. And so all of this moral relativism, and the place that I see it very specifically is in the area of marriage. We now live in this country where we have more people living together without being married than we have married people. That is not okay with God. It doesn't matter whether I like it doesn't matter whether you like it. As someone who professes Christ, you have the same opinion that God has about it. And he does not look at a committed relationship the same as marriage. He does not look at a homosexual relationship the same as a heterosexual married relationship. His word specifically calls it out as sin. The world says, well, it's all relative. It's all love. Well, you're right if you're talking about eros, but you're not right if you're talking about agape. Paul's going to have to deal with that. 
Paul will deal with three basic philosophies. Those philosophies are that of mind. It's basically how you think about it. It's might. It's who controls the power. Are we not hearing that in our society right now? It's crazy. And money. Who owns the possessions? Paul's going to deal with all three of those. And then finally, the central tenet of the gospel itself. Look, if Jesus Christ was just another guy, and he died, and the disciples hid his body, and he was dead, then we should all go home. But my Savior is risen. And he lives forevermore. And one day, just as Scripture says, I'm going to see him face to face. So Paul is absolutely unabated at preaching the gospel. He refuses to back down that he served, he saw the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord, is what he's at. You, you see, we're going to face those things. And we don't just face them on Easter, amen? When you talk to people, do you ever get the question, do you really believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? I hope you say, I absolutely do. Because it's a central truth of the gospel. If Jesus is just a prophet, that's the same as Islam. If Jesus was just a good teacher, that's exactly the same as Judaism. But we believe in a risen Lord. They were having a tough time believing that Christ was resurrected. And so for us, just as it was for Paul, there was a clash of worldviews. You had the carnal, and you had those who were in Christ. You had those who understood the truth and those who did not understand the truth. And in our world, just like in their world, the world is looking for answers. So I've been following some of the incredible drama, this tragedy in Florida's school shooting. Man, the world's aching for truth, amen? Answers. They're looking for, what do we do about this? You know, if people actually lived out the gospel, not another person. If 100% of the world were saved, there would never be another death by violence, ever. Ever. It's all but. If people actually lived out what the Word of God says, there'd never, ever, ever again be another dr incidence of drunk driving. Ever. Because there wouldn't be any drunks. And again, I know I'm speaking in perfection here, but I'm saying it for a reason. The picture that is painted in your Bible is a picture of heavenly living. How God would have us live in our day and time. As we journey through this amazing letter, probably most of you are going to come at some point in time with a question or two. I do believe the Lord will give us some answers as we study it together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you Lord, for your incredible goodness to us.
that you would author these letters to the Apostle Paul and write them to this church that was in a world that's much like ours, a mess. But Lord, just like you loved the Corinthians who were a mess, you love us when we're a mess. You love us so much that you gave your life for us, Jesus, while we were still a mess, while we were still sinning. You died so that we could live. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight as we think on these things and embark on this incredible journey, that you would minister to us your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the good news that Jesus came into the world, that the world through him might be saved. Lord, what would we do? What would we do? What would I do? Lord, I can't imagine living life without you. I'm not sure I'd want to live life without you. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your sacrifice. You died in our place. Pray that you'd empower us, Lord, to live godly lives, right side up in an upside down world. In Jesus' name, amen.